McKeever Mac Conwell II is managing partner at Rare Breed Ventures. Mac's background includes a former role as a software engineer and working as a DOD contractor with top secret clearance. He was a two-time founder with an exit and a failure. Next, Mac moved on to venture capital via the Maryland Technology Development Corporation as part of their seed investment team. Mac then transitioned into venture capital through the Maryland Technology Development Corporation, where he played a key role in their seed investment team. Today, Mac is the founder of Rare Breed Ventures, a pre to seed venture fund that focuses on investing in exceptional founders outside of large tech ecosystems. And it sounds like he's graduating this week too. So congrats on that. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That is right. This is graduation week. I am graduating from my two-year fellowship with uh, the Kaufman Fellow. So it's a good week. Very cool. What are the details on that? I haven't, I'm not too familiar with that program. Yeah. So, so the Kaufman Fellowship is pretty much the premier fellowship for venture capital. For people who are looking to grow in their career, start their funds, get better running their funds. Um, it is an amazing program. I'm part of class 26. Uh, it's incredible. It's been two years. Now, I will say it has been, it, it is an expensive program, but mm-hmm. it has been worth every penny. So uh, I've enjoyed my experience wholly. Interesting. You know, I haven't uh, heard of too many investors that are sort of constantly, you know, sort of taking an active role in education, you know, not only, you know, obviously, everyone loves to teach others, you know, and I think that was one of the cool things I've seen about your, you know, I follow you on Twitter, and you're always uh, doling out some good advice and interacting with all of your followers, but you kind of combine that, it sounds like with educating yourself, too. Um, That's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's, especially as an emerging manager trying to start a fund, there are programs to help me learn Mm -hmm. how to start a fund. And learn about LPs. Um, I think for me, it was partly, I mean, Kaufman is like this very prestigious thing. I never thought I was ever going to be good enough to get in Mm -hmm. um, or even be able to afford it if I ever got in. Um, But I think for me, it started off as a thing of, I was looking for validation. And so like Mm -hmm. this, this huge premier thing that all the best VCs have gone through, like if I do this, this helps validate me. And it, it turned into something from not me needing validation, but me really wanting to learn from others yeah. and share my perspective with others. And um, I I have to say it was one of the best decisions I've made. Um, a lot of people think Kaufman is very pretentious and like the Harvard of VC. It's got a very good name. I mean, it sounds yes. legit. <laughs> it very much so does. Um, but I will tell you that uh, the program mainly has been about how to be a better person and leader first and the better investor second. And, and mm-hmm. I really have appreciated that. And it's, it's been helpful in a lot of facets in life. But yes, it's graduation week. And I'm a little sad because uh, it's been a fun two years. Very cool. Well, we'll definitely, uh, you know, the focus why we wanted to have you on was obviously to talk about your fund and your investing uh, career and journey. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm this Kaufman uh, um, sort of uh, timeliness, I guess, is pretty cool um, how you're doing it this week. And you did mention that it was expensive. Is this something that you paid for out of sort of the fees from your fund? Or uh, I imagine that uh, if it's expensive, it's probably not something that, you know, first time investors should be doing. So I don't know is. if I've, I don't know if this is something I've actually said out loud on any podcast yet. So you might be the first to get this one. But right, the, the story down. behind that is so the Kaufman Fellowship, if you get in, it is 80 grand. Mm-hmm. That's not including travel and you know living expenses for your we meet once a quarter. Half of the time is here in the US, the other half is internationally, right? So oh, wow. it can be expensive. If you get the scholarship, they have a diversity scholarship that, that covers oh, no, they just have a scholarship, not even diversity scholarship. They have a scholarship. If you get the scholarship, they'll cut it in half. Hmm. So I was lucky enough to get the scholarship. That's still forty grand. Cool. Um, 
I was in the middle of raising my first fund at the time. And what I did was I wrote a letter, I wrote an email to a few of my limited partners, the people mm-hmm. who invest in my fund, who I had good relationships with to tell them like, I got this honor and that, you know, I got selected and it was, it was a really great thing, but that um, I couldn't afford it. And so if anybody was willing to sponsor me, I'd find some way to pay them back and with interest over time. And all six responded and all six offered to pay and nobody wanted my money back. Because hmm. <laughs> I think they saw the value of me having, being a part of that program, helping yeah. the fund as well. Um, so I didn't actually pay to get in. <laughs> I did pay for all the other stuff, but um, yeah. otherwise I would have had to figure out how to find 40K out of my management fees. And with a $10 million yeah. fund, that is tough. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, sharing that story and uh, all the details, because I think for me, too, I think it's important to kind of highlight, you know, the different opportunities, but then tactically, you know, who it makes the most sense for, how you actually, you know, got into it, right? I mean, like you said, right, there might be people who look at this program and see an 80K list price and immediately are like, that's way too much for me. They may not know about the scholarship. They may not even think about, you know, like what you did. I really like your approach is like, hey, go to the people who are already investing you, right? Sort of like sales 101. Hey, go to your repeat customers, not your new customers, right? right? I think there's a famous episode of The Office where they quiz Michael Scott, you know, it's uh, according to The Office, it's 10 times cheaper uh, to, uh, you know, get a new um, returning customer than a new customer, right? So um, that's cool for for sharing, you know, to kind of highlight that different path. And um, so we've got the the Kaufman. So let's talk about how did you, uh, you know, I read off your bio and you've got an impressive litany of uh, experience, but not all in uh, VC and investment. So how did you get into uh, VC and investing? Yeah, so um, I started off as an engineer, software mm-hmm. engineer. Um, when I ran my two companies, I was the CEO of both of them. And uh, like any other, you know, self-respecting founder, um, when I started learning about venture capital and talking to VCs, I very quickly came up with the idea that I could do this too, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you talk to just about any entrepreneur who's met an investor, they have the feeling like, I could do this. Like I know other yeah. good startups. I got friends who do this. I could invest the money. You people aren't smarter than me. One day I'll be in your seat. Uh, I was no different, um, but I literally, but I had no actual pathway to it. And so mm-hmm. um, I was actually working at a marketing firm <laughs> when I got the email about the um, the investment arm of the state of Maryland hiring a new fund manager. Hmm. And so I literally got my job in venture applying off of the email. <laughs> it literally wow. just, um, and, uh, and so that's, that's how I broke into venture. Um, it was something like as an entrepreneur, I thought I'd be, I could do, but I never actually thought I'd have the opportunity to do. So um, yeah. nothing else. I got really lucky. If you could do it, I mean, I imagine probably hundreds, if not thousands of people applied for this position. So if you could do it all over again, would you do the same kind of approach, same path, or what would you do differently? If I could do it all over again, knowing what I know now, um, I probably would have done that to say, because I still didn't have any real other way. Actually, no. What I would have done as when I was a founder, Mm -hmm. um, I I probably would have started building relationships with people with angel investors hmm. and I probably would have tried to start an angel syndicate, right? Hmm. Um, you know, do the work before you like do the job before you have the job. Mm-hmm. You know, I would probably have started an angel syndicate and started finding companies that fit, you know, what I would have thought would have been my thesis or the kind of companies that I thought we should invest in and started doing that. Cause 
effectively running an angel syndicate is almost the exact same as running a fund, right? You're hmm. sourcing deals, you're putting the information together, you're going to your investor base. The only difference is you got to go to your IC, your investor base is uh, very spread out. So you, you don't have any like standard ticket, t- yeah. standard ticket sizes, right? Mm-hmm. But if you can get a group of people who like investing in the companies that you're selecting, then it's really easy to make the transition of like, hey, I want to professionalize this into a fund that would love for you all to be LPs. That may or may not happen properly, but I think that's that's probably one of the, not easiest, but I think one of the smartest ways to kind of start off today. So if I could go back, that's probably how I'd do it. Got it. So it sounds like you got a lot of uh, good experience um, for the Maryland, uh, I'm, I'm going to look this up, Maryland Technology Development Corporation. If I tried to do that off the top of my head, I definitely would have messed it up. What is the uh, TEDCO, as I see the uh, abbreviation here? What, what is that fund? Yeah, so TEDCO is, um, I guess, this 25, 26-year-old organization here in the state of Maryland that was originally created, uh, it's actually an organization that was created out of a bill. Mm-hmm. Um, to create an organization to help fund companies originally that were commercializing technologies out of our research institutions. So Maryland ranked really high in research, but we weren't commercializing that research at as high of a level. And so TechCo was originally created to do grants to help companies that were going to um, use technologies from our research institutions like Johns Hopkins and such. Gotcha. And over time, it transformed into more of an investment organization where they still do the grants and stuff or tech transfer and things coming out of our universities, but then they started making direct equity investments into early stage tech companies in the state just mm-hmm. to build up the local tech ecosystem. Um, and so they've been doing that, yeah, 25 plus years. Wow, very cool. And so it looks like you worked there for close to four years. And uh, when did you start thinking to yourself, hey, I could do this, maybe I could do this better, or maybe I should uh, start a fund? What was sort of the impetus uh, for you starting to think, oh, I should go do this myself? Talk a little about that journey. Um, so th- that's interesting, because when I got there, when I got to the state of Maryland, I was on the seed team. Mm-hmm. This is in late 2016. One of the issues they had internally where they were they weren't investing in as many black led companies as they were others. And they were doing really good in other demographics compared to the, the wider ecosystem. That was just one demographic they weren't doing they weren't doing well in. And so I led an initiative to create a pre-seed fund to invest in those founders earlier than anybody else, basically trying to institutionalize the friends and family around that first 50, 40K. Yeah. Um, and through that process, I met a founder who I wanted to support. And who I couldn't, mm-hmm. even though here I was, I literally created a program on the state of Maryland for founders like her, and I couldn't support her. Mm. And then I started meeting other founders who I couldn't support, other founders who couldn't help. It was like I was meeting amazing founders and who were doing well, but I couldn't get them funded because of either red tape or my IC didn't agree with me or whatever. And mm-hmm. I recognized in that moment that. If I wanted to back unique founders, because not every founder looks or sounds the same, mm-hmm. but that but the founders that don't look or sound the same are are judged differently. Mm-hmm. And so, if I ever wanted to back those founders, I was going to have to do it on my own terms. And so, that's really what pushed me to start Rare Breed. Got it. When you were uh, investing for uh, Maryland with Maryland, um, what was the first company you invested in, or sort of that you spearheaded and was kind of you took full, you know majority responsibility for? 
So the very first company I ever sourced that we funded was a company called Osmosis. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think I saw it on your LinkedIn. I think it's doing it well. It is on my LinkedIn. <laughs> um, and they got acquired last year. All right. Cool. So uh, that, was a, that was a very unique opportunity. And it was funny for me because when I met the founder, it was a no-brainer. like, oh, yeah, we got to invest. And I literally spent two hours convincing this founder why it was smart for him to take venture capital. Mm. And I was finally able to convince him that we were able to be the first investor. And so uh, the very first deal, Nosmosis was a tool. It was a it was a product that would help um, medical students uh, study oh, cool. medical terms and things. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. My it's wife is uh, was a medical student, is now a doctor, and I remember she used to always. I think this company went on to be pretty big. It was called Sketchy Micro, and it was very similar to help you memorize things for you know either like the boards or MCATs. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a doctor. I don't know, but it's something about memorizing. You got to memorize a lot of stuff. So memorize that's funny. a lot of stuff. Uh, you should have retired after that first one. You're like one for one, <laughs> walk off, and call it a day. <laughs> that would have been a heck of a hit rate. The only, unfortunately, because I worked for the state, I don't get any economics from the returns of companies that they invested in. So uh, at some point, if I wanted to make the big bucks, I had to do it somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, talk about your fun now. I've got a few uh, sort of get to know you questions, rapid fire here uh, about your fun, just so people can get a sense of what you've been up to with the fun and what you're looking for, if that sounds good. That works. All right. Uh, How many investments have you made out of the fund so far? About Ballpark is fine too, if you don't know. To this date, 42. 42. All right. I, I like that. Very exact. Uh, how many um, How many do you plan to make? Uh, how many have you made this year and how many do you plan to make? So sort of give us the uh, uh, sort of pace that you're going at. We've made two so far this year. Mm-hmm. We'll probably finish the year with seven. Seven total. Okay, cool. And what's your average check size? Average check size is around 150. We typically do 250 to 100. So 150 is about the average. Okay, cool. And what type of startups do you look for and what stage? We do pre-seed the seed. That's the Mm -hmm. stage. The type of startups we look for are um, companies being made by amazing people. So we invest in any and everything. The only thing we don't do is we don't do bio. So like, I'm not a biotech guy. That's not my background. I'm not smart enough. But for everything else, yeah, we do just about anything else. (laughs) Has any founder that you've ever chatted with said that they weren't amazing? Yes, actually. Um, yeah. I've, I've had, and what did I've you had, think of them? <laughs> I thought that that was an incredible response. Yeah. And it was a very humble response. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've met some humble founders who said they weren't amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, most founders tell you how amazing they are, though. Right? Yeah. Because, I mean, that's sort of their job, right? To pitch you. It's like, hey, I am awesome. This idea is awesome. My team is awesome right now. Okay. Um, you know, if I'm asking for money to invest in this company, right? Yeah, but when I when I say amazing founders, it's the mm-hmm. things that they don't recognize or they don't notice as amazing. Yeah, right. Um, it's like the founder who figured out Venmo's API and was able to use a Venmo hack to get twenty thousand users, or the founder mm-hmm. who was able to get his entire staff to stay at the warehouse over the weekend for free just with pizza and beer, so they could rearrange the warehouse to make it more efficient. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the the founder who who just started their company, but hires the former CFO for the Bank of Kuwait. (laughs) It's like, that's not normal. You don't see that every day, right? Those are the things that I I, I really like harp on. Yeah. um, That, you know, founders aren't paying attention to. And on the opposite side, you know, I look for things that are are red flags. Like when we're having a meeting, you and your co-founder talk over each other. 
They all disagree mm-hmm. on tactics or like the, the future of the company, right? Um, is there a gender dynamic where um, somebody is uh, constantly stopping or talking over their uh, their counterpart, right? We, we see this sometimes with uh, teams that have men and women on them where the woman might be speaking and the, and the man just starts talking over her, like yeah. running over the conversation. Like those are little, those are things that we notice. Those are things mm-hmm. that you're supposed to notice, right? And so I look for the little things, both good and bad. Yeah. Are there any qualities or patterns that you look for or sort of have found? I think the few examples you cited were really cool, but they also sort of seem like, you know, very one-off, you know, kind of awesome things. But is there anything where it's like, wow, consistently, if people are hiring, you know, the best people are able to convince, you know, another co-founder to come along on the ride with them. Are there any sort of patterns that you look for? Or is it just sort of when you see it, you know it? The biggest pattern we look for is really the way founders think about their customer acquisition. Mm-hmm. Right. Founders who have spent a lot of time thinking about who their customer is, how to get to them, how to work them, how to sell. That goes really far with us. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes we have found that they have really unique and amazing products. They seem really great. But I have zero confidence they'll ever be able to sell at a high enough volume for this to be, yeah. you know, a billion dollar company. Like I see companies all the time. I'm like. Your best possible outcome is you be a fifty to one hundred million dollar company mm-hmm. at exit, and that's amazing. Yeah, I'm going for billions, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And that's and that can be hard to set out and parse out, but that's the the calculus we're always trying to do. Got it. Yeah, no, I, I like that point a lot. And I think that, you know, uh, as the title might imply, I'm still a wannabe investor. But, you know, I think when I've been doing personal angel checks myself, you know, I kind of always was looking more for a hey, founders I like, companies I like. And, you know, now that I have a small fund of my own and I'm investing other people's money, I think the one big thing I've noticed is I'm kind of really a lot more focused on bigger outcomes, like billion dollar in my head. Like that's like one of the main two to three things I'm thinking about. Like, hey, how does this company get to a billion dollars or more hyperscale? You know, not just something cool where, you know, there'll be a bunch of out, you know, these things out there, people using this product. But I know for me, that's kind of the one change that I've had to make with my mindset. I'm curious if there's any changes um, that you've had to make from your time, you know, investing uh, with Maryland, you know, now going to your own fund, maybe things that you were a little surprised by or, you know, maybe things you've learned along the way, uh, too. That's sort of like your North Star. Um, my, my North Star in this outside of the amazing founder who like pushed me to start my own fund mm-hmm. is who is that? Let's give him a shout out if you'd okay, like. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that is Shauna step Jones. Many people have heard me tell her story a bunch of times. Cool. She's a founder who had to become a surrogate mother to raise the capital, start building her prototype. Right. Gotcha. That's an extreme story, but it's real. Mm-hmm. And so she is my North star. And really within that story, the big thing that I had to recognize was how to make investments without allowing my biases to get in the way, right? Got it. And the way I do that is I say at a a minimum, if your company can can hit on these four things, Mm -hmm. there's potential. Are you in a, number one, are you in a market that can support a billion dollar business? Mm -hmm. Number two, do you have a product that solves a real problem? Number three, do you have customers who are willing to pay for that solution or use it? And number four, do they like it so much they keep coming back or they keep telling other people about it? Hmm. If you can do those four things, if you can do those four things, there's a chance for us to make money together. And that's how 
a woman walks into your office and tells you she's got a new line of women's hosieries that's going to mm-hmm. be shaped, that's going to make them look more shapely. And you're like, I, like, what are you talking about? And then she tells you, I'm in five stores already and I'm already doing, you know, 200000 in, in yeah. revenue. And the average woman who buys one of my pairs buys four a year. Well, that's how you make sure you're not the investor who skips out on a company like Spanx. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I mean, it's. I, I imagine you don't know too much about that uh, company when they walk in the door. But uh, once you hear the numbers, you know, if they meet your four criteria, you mentioned before, you know, off air that you got a little shit for being a generalist. Um, would you invest in a company like Spanx? Would you invest in, you know, any idea that comes your way? Or what do you uh, what do you think about the sort of sector and focus? I I would invest. I would invest in just about any company that has the potential to get to a billion. Like, if I see potential to get to a billion, I don't care what you do. Yeah. And um, you know, a lot of folks like software because of the economics mm-hmm. and the exit potential. But I, I'll tell you this: so uh, I have a, a mentor of mine who used to work at a firm, Novak Biddle. Mm-hmm. Novak Biddle's old school firm, been around for a long time, and. Um, one of their funds did really poorly coming out of the dot-com bubble. The dot-com bubble, everything crashed. All software, all tech disappeared. Yeah. Well, one of their investments was in an insurance company, an insurance company that was trying to get into tech. So, you know, like the folks that every time you buy something, the best buy is like, hey, do you want to get insurance on this? Yeah. They were trying to break into that, like the very earliest parts of the internet. Well, when all the dot-com companies disappeared, they were just a standard insurance company. Yeah. that returned their fund multiple times because there are great companies everywhere doing all kinds mm-hmm. of things. The moment, the moment you start to limit yourself, you actually limit the opportunity you have to getting to the biggest outcomes. Now, granted, people say, well, it's harder for you to help those companies, you know, to really push them forward. Look, I come in super early. By the time a company yeah. gets to a Series A, it, they, they often run in probably with somebody else anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like I can still help them, but like there's other people, there's a, there's a whole nother apparatus around them. Yeah. Right. And so for me, I'm just trying to look for the best opportunities. And I find that very often I find that uh, traditional VC teaches you to only invest in a subset of the best opportunities you find mm-hmm. and not yeah. in just the best companies. But everybody who's ever had like a huge exit will tell you, it doesn't matter. You just need to get in. Now, granted, entry point is important um, and ownership is more important, but neither one of those matter if it's not in one of the unicorns. Yeah. Well, so I think uh, I really like that perspective. And I think I've heard it from some people, you know, where it's like, hey, you know, I've got this focus or the sector. But, you know, I also was friends with this guy who started Dropbox, you know, because we worked up, you know, whatever company. And it's like, I feel like those stories you hear a lot. And it's sometimes, you know, it's like you'll people will go out of their sector, right, for the right person in their network or right connection or deal yep. that a friend is doing, things like that. Do you ever feel overwhelmed, though, with the potential deal flow, right? If you're looking at all sectors and, you know, any, you know, any founder, right. And getting all these intros and connections, like how do you sort of balance all of that inbound or really potential companies, um, with, uh, you know, your time and obviously, uh, you know, whatever team you've got helping you. Yeah, I think, and I get this a lot and I don't think mm-hmm. people understand the, this one point of like, I used to work for the investment arm of the state of Maryland. So that means yeah. anybody with any kind of company that had anything to do with tech 
had to come to us. Like yeah. I literally saw. I bet, I bet you really saw the range of uh, yes. companies there, huh? <laughs> I saw all kinds of things yeah. every single day. So like the high volume is something I'm mm-hmm. used to. It's just a matter of sifting through and, and getting very quickly to yes and no's or you know passive things going on. Um, it can be overwhelming because it is so many. Yeah. But the the actual like drilling down on them, like even though the volume's high, the amount of quality, you're still mm-hmm. only going to have. I don't know, maybe 10 companies a month where you're like, this is interesting. Yeah. Right. And you'll invest in zero. We'll invest in like zero to two of those every mm-hmm. month, generally speaking. Right. So, yes, there's a lot of high volume, but that's kind of how I got started. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Are, are there any tips or tactical advice that you can share with people who might be out there? Are you the type of person where if you see a pitch that you like and it resonates with you or you get some sort of warm intro, you'll hop on the phone immediately? Or do you like to send a list of questions first? What sort of, uh, you know, like tactical advice do you have for people that, you know, has worked well in your experience? Yeah. I mean, I typically, I'll, I'll do it once over on the deck if you sent it. And I'll get to a very quick of like, hey, I would like to meet. Let's have a second. Let's have a meeting. If it's something I find interesting, if it's not something I find interesting, but I think this company has traction, could be interesting for somebody else, then I might send it out to some other folks. If it's not, then it's just going to be, um, you know, this is something that's not in, that's not interesting for us right now. So I'll probably send out a, a more passing email, and I will tell you the amount of thank yous I get from founders who like, hey, thank you for letting me know that this is interesting or responding to my email. It's pretty staggering at times. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess those that's about the most practical I get I could get with you. I mean, I would tell you if you want to be very kind of data driven with it, there are two funds I would tell you to, to look at. So um, mm-hmm. Untapped VC with Yohei. Um, Yohei is amazing. Everything's data driven. It's all him. He does it yeah. all himself. So he has all these like different bots and things to support. And the other group is Hustle Fund. They automate everything. Cool. And so like, if you want to learn about like how to automate this, these kind of workflows and processes from a fund standpoint, those are two funds that have, that are great to look at. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, uh, I know Yohei, and I'm an advisor for one of the companies that he invested in, OpenVIA. And then uh, we had Brian Nichols from Hustle Fund on uh, recently. There you go. So big fan of uh, what they're up to. And I will say for anyone listening right now who uh, you might get a pitch or two, you know, after this, obviously, but uh, I will I will give them a tip that you hate teaser decks, right? That was initially how we started chatting. And uh, I think you said rarely do they give you enough information. So make sure uh, you, you want the full course. You don't want an appetizer, it sounds like. Yes. If you want to do a teaser, just make sure your teaser has all the numbers. Don't send me a deck that no numbers in it. <laughs> well, that's not, not really a teaser then at that point. <laughs> Um, well, awesome. And, you know, speaking of Twitter, uh, we've got a couple uh, trending Twitter threads that I wanted to get your take on. Um, so before we let you get out of here, I do want to uh, say thank you for sharing your your journey and your story. I mean, I feel like we could probably go on for a couple hours, but uh, I know you probably have a, 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 a nice list of decks and full decks, hopefully, to review. So I've got a couple uh, Twitter threads for you here that I'm going to share that have recently been trending on Twitter, and uh, we'll get your quick take on them if that sounds good. Works for me. All right, cool. Let's go ahead and share this. And today I've got a cool uh, one because this is actually from a former uh, wannabe Angels guest, Andrew Aruda. And then the next one I'm going to share is from a future guest. So hopefully this will uh, load up on the screen here in a second. 
And uh, if it's not, I'm just going to read it off right now for you. <laughs> it says, invest, this is from Andrew Aruda. Uh, he says, investors don't just send founders an article about a competitor or possible competitor without a thoughtful sentence or two as well. Founders know about their competitors. They saw the article already, share info they may not know or a thought that shows you're actually thinking. And uh, Andrew, as you might guess, is a founder uh, at Flex, but also an angel investor. But I thought this kind of take was cool. And I wanted to get your feedback because you have all these different portfolio companies. So how do you think about, you know, like when a pop thoughts in your head, do you email them, do you text them? Or what do you think about Andrew's tweet here? I will email or text a founder. I'm, I'm better at text with my founders mm -hmm. and just in general. And um, very often when something like this comes up, I'll, I'll text them and be like, hey, did you see this? Uh, it looks like there's somebody else in your space. Um, and very often the founders come like, yeah, you know, we saw it. And then uh, I'll always ask them, so tell me, why are you better than they are? Yeah. And and they always, almost always go into like a long explanation. Yeah. Um, but every now and then it'll catch them off guard. Mm. Interesting. And, so you, you sort know, of use I love it the... as, got go it. so you sort of use it as more like opening the discussion yes. kind of point. But yeah. how do you think, what's that? I was going to say, but to Andrew's point. From a founder's perspective, um, I agree with him, right? I could probably yeah. do a better job of adding more thoughts. Um, with that, some of it's just, you know, ebbs and flows of the day and how much time you have to really put mm -hmm. forth to it. But in general, you know, I think Andrew's right. Founders will probably appreciate that more, knowing that you've been thoughtful about it. Yeah. Because they know who's coming in their space, right? Yeah. And if they don't, that's usually a bigger problem. <laughs> Yeah, they haven't heard of the biggest competitor that just raised millions of dollars. Uh, I, I, this one resonated with me because I'm definitely guilty of this. When I read this, I was like, oh, shit, I, I don't do this a lot, but I've definitely done it before. And it kind of made me think, hey, you know, maybe a good quick way to add value is like, oh, you know, I just downloaded this app or I'm on their email list, you know, and like here's something I noticed in addition to, you know, like something that maybe they don't, you know, they may know of the competitor, but what's like that next quick level that you can do to add a little value and, you know, kind of along the lines of competitors, I was curious, how do you think? about competitors when you're evaluating a company to invest in, right? If there are a bunch of other competitors, is that a bad thing, a good thing? If there's no competitors, how do you think about competitors in uh, you know early stage startups that you're looking at? I want you to know your competitors inside now. And if you mm -hmm. have too many competitors, like if this is in like a very crowded space, like a, a dating app or a new social mm -hmm. media app, like I typically stay all the way away from those just because like, I, what I know is there's going to be another winner. How do I yeah. pick another winner out of this group is really hard to do. So the only times I will touch something like that is if you have really, really fast growth, right? Yeah. You have extreme mm -hmm. growth out the gate. Okay, that's interesting, right? Gotcha. Outside of that, like that's, that's really tough. Um, but in general, every company's going to have competitors. I expect yeah. you to have competitors. Um, I know some VCs get gets, gets uh, scared away from competitors that have raised too much money already or are already really big mm -hmm. in the space. If I believe in a founder, I believe in a founder. And that means I believe you're, you might be good enough to outbeat them. Like we have a company yeah. that we're looking at right now who's in a space where they haven't raised much money and they're about to acquire one of their biggest competitors who's mm -hmm. raised almost 20 times as much money as they have. Interesting. Right. Like, like those things happen. Yeah. 
I, ju- I just invested in a home sharing company and they have a pretty direct competitor that has raised, you know, five, six million bucks, but it was like a year and a half ago. And mm-hmm. I kind of brushed them off because I was like, well, they probably already spent that <laughs> that money and they haven't, you know, they haven't done much. They haven't made a name. So, you know, for whatever reason, maybe the team, you know, didn't do great or whatever. So that was how I uh, brushed aside that competitor, I guess you would say. <laughs> yep. It happens. For better or worse. So, um, all right. And the next one I'm going to share is from an upcoming guest on Wannabe Angels. She's scheduled to come on in a couple weeks here, Stevie. Um, and uh, she uh, has a tweet here. And I'm kind of now I'm putting the pressure on because if she doesn't come, it's going to be awkward because I'm announcing her right now coming on the huh? podcast in a couple weeks. She says, every founder I've met that was paranoid someone would steal their idea, couldn't execute for shit and ended up fumbling their own idea bag. Well, what do you think, Mac? I wouldn't say that's for every founder I've met. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say for most first-time founders, just getting started, everybody's worried somebody's going to steal your idea. Like I was that founder when I first yeah. got started, walking around with NDA looking foolish, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's very specific to first-time founders and founders who who aren't part of the startup ecosystem already, yeah. right? So that's part of the learning journey. Um, what I would say to Stevie is when you find a founder in that situation, taking five minutes to talk to them about why nobody's going to steal their idea, why yeah. they need to talk about it and how to move forward. It's the founders who continue to stay paranoid, refuse to let go of that, even as they start to learn, yeah. that can't execute, right? Like those, that's the big problem. Mm. I wouldn't use that blanket statement for all founders because like, again, I know plenty of founders that start off that way because they don't know any better. Yeah. All they see is like what they see in TV shows or what they hear about from Shark Tank. Yeah. You know, there was a, there was a story that just came out about um, Damon John putting out a, a restraining order on a, <laughs> a, 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 a comp- on the founders of a company that he invested in from Shark Tank four years ago. And they're mad because they say he's cutting them out of their profits. Like, well, did you look at the contract you signed with them? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like he's just he's just following the contract that y'all agreed to. So, you yeah. know. I, I like that take your, your take a lot because, you know, I, I run a media business and I get a lot of people pitching. I think you're right. There's something about, you know, if you're not traditionally in the startup ecosystem or, you know, like let's say you're someone who, you know, is watching Shark Tank and you're an entrepreneur at heart and you have this great idea and like, yeah, that's probably your first inclination is like, I want to patent this or I want to, you know, I don't, I want to reach out to someone and, but I want them to sign an NDA. I don't want them to steal my idea. Right. And obviously there's all these famous examples in tech of, you know, the idea doesn't matter for shit. Right. Um, it's all about the execution and the team yep. and you know uber eats was the market share leader and then doordash came along and focused on the suburbs and you know now they're two-thirds market share right even though they got a couple year later start and, you know there's all these like kind of flip-flop of market share and you know kind of that uh, exemplify that point that uh you know ideas are, are kind of you know don't always matter too much but i really like that taking five minutes i might steal that in the future and kind of not you know not just saying hey i'm not going to sign this nda obviously um but uh, you know kind of educating them why the idea idea is important, but, you know, execution in your opinion might be 99% if that's what you think. Yeah. Um, very cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on Mac. And, uh, I will say based off your responses to our last Twitter threads, you've got a lot of character and you're, uh, educating me in ways that I can be more patient. Cause I feel like I would not have the patience, uh, that you have in some of these interactions, but that's kind of why I enjoy having guests, uh, like you on that are doing different things and bringing different perspectives and backgrounds. And some of it I'll take and, and use myself and some I won't, but, uh, definitely makes me a, hopefully makes me a better investor along the way and all of our audience. 
So if folks want to learn more about you, we'll definitely link to uh, your Twitter. We've got your LinkedIn here. If they want to pitch you, uh, how do you like people to pitch you if uh, they're a startup founder? Send me a DM, shoot me an email. If you find somebody who has my cell phone number, text me. (laughs) Come to me any which way you can. Uh, For those who don't know my email, it's it's on the interweb somewhere out there. There are ways to find it. I got a good tip for them. I'm I'm a big fan of Rocket Reach. You t- you use people's LinkedIn profiles, and then it'll give you all of their you know personal and business emails and everything. And I'll email people, and they're like, "How the hell did you get my email?" I'm like, "Rocket Reach. This service is amazing." I think they have a free version. I pay fifty bucks a month. So um, beware if I, if I email you, that's how I got your email. So Mac, really appreciate <laughs> you coming on, and uh, definitely look to uh, to chat more in the future. Absolutely, man. It's fun. All right.